Hi, I'm Jill Schlesinger, host of the Better Off Podcast. Today, we've got Scott Galloway. He is the author of The Four, the hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. CBS, The New York Times, Viacom, all figure out a way to, at a reasonable level, fact check and screen their advertisers. And if the New York Times can do it with $90 million in cash flow, Facebook can do it with $12 billion in cash flow. I think Facebook needs to own up to its responsibilities as a media company. They have accepted with open arms the healthy margins, the influence, the celebrity of a media company, but they seem allergic to the responsibilities of a media company. And I think we're fed up with it. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Oh, we've got such a great treat for you today. You have read about all of the power of very few companies. Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google. Those four companies control an incredibly large percentage of our lives. How did they become so successful? How can they continue to actually compete for our money? What's going to happen as the regulatory pressure amps up? I am so psyched because we've got a fantastic guest today, Scott Galloway. He's written a book called The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. You got to go check him out. He's a professor at NYU's Stern School of Business. He teaches brand strategy and digital marketing. Uh, He is a serial entrepreneur, though. He's got a fantastic YouTube series called Winners and Losers. I absolutely encourage you to check that out. And we'll put a link to that in our show notes. This is Scott's first book. He's a great talker. And that's why we have him on for the whole show. No call after this show. But you know what? Stay tuned. We might have a surprise. We might start dropping calls in the feed just because we're getting backed up and we don't want you to wait so long. So right now, here's our interview with Scott Galloway. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Scott Galloway, welcome to Better Off. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Joe. Well, we start the program with one very important question. Yep. And it should be interesting for someone with your very diverse background, and that is, what is the best financial decision you've ever made? (sighs) Wow, that's a great question. Um, The best financial decision I ever made, uh, for me, it's been um, probably diversification, and I learned it too late, and that was moving to cash typically as I'm an entrepreneur, uh, turned academic. And unfortunately for most of my life, I've had 90% of my wealth in one asset, and that's usually the company I'm running. So the decision to take money off the table and put it in different things, even when I felt like I was selling cheap or the only people willing to buy my shares in the company, typically your venture capitalist, is getting a better deal than the market, the decision and the peace of mind that comes from that decision to diversify away from an asset that's 90% of your wealth. And most of the time, that was a good problem because the company was doing well. So, uh, uh, you know, I, at least on paper, my financial health looked good. But moving to cash and diversification. I love that. Very good rule for all of us. There you go. All right. Scott's just written a book called The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. And I wanted to start talking about this by going sort of towards the end of the book. Sure. And reading something that I hope you can explain, which you say, it's never been a better time to be exceptional or a worse time to be average. That's one of the major effects of the disruptive environment created by the rise of the lottery economy, wherein digital technology creates a single market in which one leader can capture the overwhelming majority of gains. 
Talk a little bit about that. What are these gains? What are these four companies yeah. doing that are yeah. is giving them an outsized share of the economy? Sure. So if you the epicenter for this lottery economy, if you were to try and identify one, and it's not their fault, it's just they've been so successful, is Amazon has changed the compact between the markets and companies and shareholders in that it's never been profitable or exceptionally profitable, yet its stock has skyrocketed. And because of that, it has access to cheaper capital while pouring all their money back into the business or offering the lowest price possible. This has snaked all the way back into the private company ecosystem. And I've been starting companies, uh, venture-backed companies, for a quarter century now. And when I first started them, the, the kind of the gestalt was there will be four or six or eight winners in this category. We're going to raise some money, lose money for a couple of years, and then tomorrow has to be today and we go profitable. And there's a bunch of firms bumping up against each other, but we're all doing well and have outcomes of, say, X. And some go away, but a lot do okay. We're now in an economy where everyone's mimicking Amazon, where the idea is raise as much money as possible, establish your position as the leader, which attracts more capital, both financial and human, and then you kind of run away with the ball game, and you recognize 100x. So there's fewer and fewer winners, but they're much bigger winners. And it's snaking all the way into our human capital economy. So when I got out of business school, if you said five years post-graduation, most of the kids or most of us at the age in our early 30s would be making between $100,000 and $150,000 a year, which is a really good living. Yeah. Um, went to a good business school. But now I would say most of the kids graduating from my, my class this year at NYU Stern, in five to seven years, there'll be several kids making a million dollars plus a year, either in alternative investments or they'll have recognized huge upside through uh, shares in some sort of startup. But a third of them will be dependent upon their parents or the government. So the global marketplace, the ability to attract capital if you're really good, the ability to get to attract companies bidding for you if you establish a reputation as being outstanding because everyone in the world can see if you're outstanding on LinkedIn, it's become a great time to be exceptional. It's become a terrible time to be good. And most of us are just average and good. What's going to happen to the good uh, they're going to make less money. And that's okay? Is I don't, it okay? No, no. I'm not, I'm not talking about what's right or what's wrong. No, no, I'm, no, I'm just, just talking saying, about like, what is. Right. So if you look back to your sort of your class, right? Sure. And you think, okay, there was a bunch of kids who were making 100000 150000 It's almost like hearing someone say, like, you know, there were doctors who were making, um, you know, $800,000 yeah. a year and yeah. they were reading slides three days a week. Yeah. Right. They were radiologists. Yeah. And now maybe they're making four hundred thousand dollars. Is yeah. that right sizing? Is this right sizing talent or is it going to be bad? I mean, what are those are those kids going to be just uh, disgruntled? Are they going to be accepting? What's your what's your guess? So healthcare is its own unique animal. I don't pretend to understand it other than whenever I get around a group of doctors, it's basically a giant complaint. Fest right. Because emotionally, and psychologically, we anchor off of our high point in our career. And at some point, if you're, especially if you're a doctor who's my age, or your dad was a doctor, at some point they were making half a million dollars a year and working three days a week. And that's what they anchor should be the natural ecosystem. Uh, so distinct to the healthcare environment, which I don't pretend to understand, what I see is that if I take eight of my colleagues and I try and line them up, they're all very good um, in terms of their skills, but a, a, a kind of a, a, an algorithm or an am amalgam of luck, being in the right place at the right time, leadership skills. Some will make 100, 150 grand a year, and I have other friends who are making 20 to $30 million a year. And the, the difference between those individuals is one, the sector they go into, tapping into the information economy, 
very hardworking, very talented. A lot of it's timing. Uh, but then the ones who are making 20 and $30 million a year get tax breaks because the majority of their income comes from capital gains, which is taxed at a lower rate. They have exceptionally savvy financial advisors figuring out a way for them to spend more time in Portugal and London or perhaps incorporate their fund in the Cayman Islands. So we've entered not only this lottery economy, but an economy where the government sort of shows up after you've won the lottery and doubles or triples your winnings. And that, that's probably more political than, than, than you asked for. But is it a bad thing? I actually think over the long run, an econ- I believe what Peter Drucker believed. I be- believe an economy's purpose, the sole reason for an economy, is to create a middle class. And to have a thriving middle class, you have to have wealthy people because we need to be aspirational. There need to be big winners. But that middle seems to be getting hollowed out. We're, right. we're, we seem to be moving towards a society of 3 million lords served by 350 million serfs, task rabbits, and Uber drivers. So, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, w- I would say I'm concerned about it. Yeah, I, I would too. And, and, and when you talk about Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google and the outsized share of the economy that they draw down, you also talk about how they are job destroyers mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. I think the, the comparison you make between Amazon and Walmart is really instructive, mm-hmm. right? Because Walmart's the biggest, mm-hmm. right? The biggest retailer in the world. Yep. Still, That's I right. guess. Yeah, number one. And now Amazon, you know, essentially has a bigger market cap than Walmart. Oh, yeah. Right? So innovators replacing jobs in the short run is nothing new. You know, 40% of the of jobs, turn of the century, 20th century, agrarian, by the end of the century, 4%, we replace those with higher paying jobs. We've just never seen any firms as good at it. So Amazon can transact the same amount of retail revenue with one person versus retail. traditional retail takes two. So if Amazon grows their business $20 billion this year, you're going to have somewhere between thirty and 50,000 cashiers, merchants, store clerks, security guards, basically fill up Yankee Stadium and be out of work. That's not... Amazon's fault, so to speak. We just have to be cognizant of the fact that we are just, these companies are so good at what they do and so efficient, they destroy jobs really fast. Now, you talked about market capitalization. Amazon has added the value of Walmart to their market capitalization in the last two years. In just, just two years. In just two years. But because Amazon runs their business at break even, since 2008, Amazon has paid $1.4 billion in corporate income taxes and Walmart has paid 64. Like, let's just pause for a second. Sure. What is that about? That is just about financial engineering at Amazon? Or is it like, hey, they're taking all this money and reinvesting it in the business, and that is what the government is incentivizing them to do? And there's a really solid argument that that's a good thing, that they reinvest as opposed to aggregate a ton of cash or spin dividends out to those same wealthy people we were talking about, a lower tax rate. Uh, So there's an argument that there's nothing wrong with that. The, the, The question, though, and I think the uncomfortable question is, if arguably the most successful company in the world can run a break-even and thereby not pay any taxes, how do we pay our soldiers, our firefighters, and our teachers? Because if the most successful companies in the world aren't paying any taxes, then inevitably that probably means the lesser successful companies are paying more. Now, I don't know the answer. There's In Brazil, once you get to a certain size, they tax you on gross top-line revenues as opposed to profits. But it seems as if Amazon has figured out a way not to game the system, but to optimize it because why would you ever be profitable? Why would you ever get the market hooked on the crack cocaine of profits? Because if you take them away, the attic gets irritable. Just run a break even. Mm, that's fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about that Amazon Whole Foods deal, which yeah. you predicted. 
Yeah, I got lucky there. Can you? Well, wait. Lucky. So let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. So what happened? Tell tell the story about how that happened. Sure. So people always ask me who will Amazon acquire, and Amazon had never acquired a company over a billion dollars. And the week before, I was on a bunch of media um, uh, channels and outlets, and it just always made sense for me that Amazon would acquire Whole Foods. They could shut the stores down and justify the purchase price just because they'd have 500 well-lit, operationally um, functioning warehouses that are within probably probably one kilometer of 40% of the discretionary income in America. So this acquisition just made all kinds of sense. And then you add in the fact that Whole Foods has relationships with all these long-tail food brands, which wealthy people are more drawn to. You, you bring in the fact that it's a fantastic brand, great environment. And also, in order to create intensity across the 60% of households that are prime members, you couldn't create that intensity without more fluidity and more contact. And the only way commercially you get more contact with a household is with grocery. And you can't be the most dominant retailer in the world, which is what Amazon wants to be, without owning or being a player in what is the largest consumer segment probably in the world, and that's the $750 billion grocery segment. So it just it wasn't if, it was when for me. And Walmart right now is the biggest grocer, yeah. right? Yep. And so what do you think happened when that deal was announced? Do you think Walmart anticipated it? I hope they're following you. They should be. So um, I know those guys well. I, I believed that Walmart, P&G, and Unilever should have put in a counter bid because I think Amazon would have responded. And it, at a minimum, it was a no-lose situation in my mind. At a minimum, they would have made Amazon pay more money. And if they'd gotten it, I think they would have got a, a great asset. But look what happened. Between the time that Amazon announced the transaction when it closed, the value of Kroger, which is the largest pure play grocer in America, declined by a third. Mm. So this is the largest grocer in the U.S., uh, pure play, declining by losing a third of its value because Amazon bought a company one-eleventh the size of Kroger, which just gives you a, a sense for the dominance and the perception of Amazon's momentum in the investor markets. Between the time the company closed... Amazon's stock value increased by more than the acquisition price, and its competitors, other groceries, declined by more than the acquisition price. So Amazon now has such credibility in the marketplace that it can point at an acquisition, announce it, and force the competitors to pay for it. We've never seen anything like this. Yeah, it's like the fear factor. And, and you know, I have to say that gone are the days where I feel like a little bit of like, well, you know, if uh, the big guys go out, they were the ones who put the right. small mom and pops out. Now it's just fear. I just literally believe that Amazon's taking over the world. And when I yeah. hear that, when I heard that acquisition, I was walking the dogs in the park and I get a call like from work like, hey, this deal's announced. And I, I think I said, oh, my God, because I really did feel like, all right. Once they decide to go into a business, they are going to change that industry. And that's just the way it's going to be. And I don't want to just talk about Amazon, but I, I'm, I think it's sort of instructive because there's been a lot of retailers in the news. We're going to come on to the holiday season and everyone's going to talk about the death of retail. And retail's mm -hmm. not dying, but mm -hmm. retailers are dying, right? Yeah, so it depends what sector you're talking about. If you take out department stores and apparel, retail's actually doing okay. The bottom line is there's just too much square footage of retail in the U.S. There's about three feet for every one per capita in Britain versus the U.S. I think Canada has about 50% more. So what we're going through structurally in terms of some of these store closings is rational. It just makes sense. Uh, what people mistake it for is they, they say retail is dying. It's not that retail is dying. I would argue that it's more an indication that the middle class is suffering. Go into a wealthy neighborhood and you're going to see commercial rents are pretty strong. What we're seeing is certain categories are getting hit really hard with sort of the perfect storm. So apparel, vulnerable to Amazon, 
uh, an experience that isn't strong. I mean, to a certain extent, a lot of people would say grocery had it coming. You can do what I call the 1985 test. If you go to the middle of a grocer, oftentimes like a Kroger, and you spin around, you wouldn't know it's not 1985. Hmm. Whereas you go into Sephora, you know it's not 1985. You go into a Starbucks, you know it's not 1985. So a lot of these retailers that, you know, if you will, there's this incredible culling but what I think is scary is what's happening in the investment markets where a third of the S&P gains are just from, I think, five companies. I see in my class almost all the top talent is going to one of five companies. So these companies feel as if they're running away with it. Now, having said that, when guys like me predict that companies are becoming too dominant, that's usually a bell for when they're about to go into structural decline. Well, I was just thinking about because of all of the regulatory yeah. oversight of, say, Google and now Facebook, which is yeah. finally saying, hey, yeah, well, maybe that when we were not barely on top of the whole Russian thing. And, yeah. and so is the tide starting to turn a little bit against these companies? I think the worm has turned. I think the biggest argument over the last several years has been which CEO is more Jesus-like. We've literally turned these companies into religions. Apple is a religion. Steve Jobs is our Jesus Christ. The new iPhone shouldn't be called the iPhone Ten or X. It should be called the iPhone Cross. <laughs> We've decided that if you're suspected of a DUI, you can be strapped to a chair and have bodily fluids taken from your body. If you're suspected of murder, we can search your computer in your house. But if a terrorist uses an iPhone, you're not allowed into the iPhone. And you say that there was such sort of pushback when you were saying, like, this is ridiculous. Of course, we have to be able to open these up. Yeah. And what kind of feedback did you get after you went out, went public with that kind of statement? I receive a ton of pushback. You know, I get more pushback and negative comments uh, on the Apple privacy issue than anything I talk about. It's like as if people think that this is, well, this is my freedom of speech. Yeah, that Tim Cook is taking a very moral, you know, a very justified stand and that if they create a backdoor into uh, the iPhone, that it would be accessible by, you know, very negative parties and it would be bad for all of us and we all need a certain semblance of privacy. And, you know, my retort to that is, your kid doesn't come home from school one day. They find his or her iPhone. You want into that iPhone. And I, I have a lot of faith in our, our law enforcement. I have still have a lot of faith in our courts to make discretionary calls around this. So this absolute fervor that the iPhone should be totally encrypted and no one should be allowed into it just doesn't make any sense to me. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Scott Galloway in just a minute. Uh, now, while... Scott does not actually believe that everything on the iPhone should be totally encrypted. You probably do want strong encryption when you're talking about your investment life. And that's what our sponsor, Betterment, offers. Betterment is the largest independent online financial advisor, and they do use the strongest browser encryption available. So that's good, right? But also, here's something new at Betterment, an investment review. And you may be asking yourselves a bunch of questions, but the most important one probably that always burns at the front of your mind, are you getting as much as you can from your investments? Now enter Betterment. Betterment now offers a free investment review, which helps you assess your investment accounts and also takes into account tax strategies, fees, risk exposure. Helps you see what you're doing well and how you can improve. The Betterment Free Investment Review can also help you get a better picture of what you can expect from Betterment. There's no sign-up required. Visit Betterment.com slash better off to start your free five-minute investment review today. 
That's Betterment.com slash off. And now back to our interview with Scott Galloway. I heard you on the air with Kara Swisher on uh, Recode Decode. And yep. one of the things that you guys were talking about was Facebook and yep. its role in the 2016 election in yep. the aftermath of that. What did you think when they were sort of saying, like, who me? Why, we can't do sure. this. What, what was the thought there? So the general defense around Facebook, at least initially, and they've moved off of this, is that we're a platform, not a media company. And that absolves us of responsibility uh, in terms of the content. And my viewpoint is if you create content, you run advertising against it, boom, congratulations, you're a media company. And I worry that the youth of the company and the youth of the CEO means they don't have a historical context for the importance of the fourth estate, whether it's the Pentagon Papers and Vietnam, whether it's Watergate, or just local corruption, the role that the media plays. And CBS, The New York Times, Viacom, all figure out a way to, at a reasonable level, fact check and screen their advertisers. And if the New York Times can do it with $90 million in cash flow, Facebook can do it with $12 billion in cash flow. I think them saying we're a platform, not a media company, would be similar to finding out McDonald's was serving 80% fake beef. We get encephalitis from it. We get angry at them. And they would say, it's not our responsibility. We're not a fast food restaurant. We're a fast food platform. I think Facebook needs to own up to its responsibilities as a media company. They have accepted with open arms the healthy margins, the influence, the celebrity of a media company, but they seem allergic to the responsibilities of a media company. And I think we're fed up with it. How do you think that traditional media companies helped build that platform? I mean, in some respects, this to me feels like, oh, my God, we helped create this monster. And when I say we, I mean I'm speaking with my CBS hat on. Sure. I believe that I believe that old media has been the outsourced investor relations department for the four. They dominate. So the latest one is this bidding war for the second headquarters of Amazon. Now, Amazon could have just done the process and announced it, but Amazon's very savvy and announces they're doing a bidding process. And now guys like me are running around in the front page of every magazine and newspaper is talking about Amazon's second headquarters. Now, there's some negative news that they don't like, but these companies have effectively dominated old media, and we are sycophantic, and we love talking about them. I'm on, in some form of media, three to five times a week. Four out of the five, I'm talking about one of the four, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google. And the general conversation is just, could be described as just how awesome they are and how dominant they are. I think we in you know, old media have absolutely been their investor relations department and played a role in this gross idolatry of innovators. I'm, I feel like we worship at the altar of innovation versus kindness and character now. Mm. Uh, and also we fell into this trap in old media. I was on the board of the New York Times for a couple of years that information wants to be free. And we gave them our IP. We gave Apple our music. We gave Google our information without charging them so they could turn around and sell it for more money. Which of the traditional media companies do you think will be able to transcend and survive? I believe there's a survivability index that's pretty easy to fashion in old media, and that is take the percentage of revenues that come from subscription revenue and the percentage that comes from advertising. So the New York Times, the FT, gets 60 70% of their revenues from subscriptions and somewhere between 30 and 40% from advertising. They're going to be fine. Viacom, some of the television stations that get 80%, 90% of their revenue from advertising, Condé Nast up the street, which gets 80 90% of their revenue from advertising, they're in trouble because mm-hmm. the advertising industrial complex 
is under huge attack, mostly because young people, especially young people with disposable income, simply put, what media they watch, it's very easy, media that doesn't have ads polluting it. Is there a way that the broadcast television news business survives? You say you've said it's dying. Is there a way to partner with uh, something that millennials want to consume and transform itself? So, so far partnering with these companies, you know, a lot of us or a lot of old media got excited about Facebook instant stories. uh, And partnering with Google or Facebook is, I would describe the same way a virus partners with a host. And that is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they, they, they might use the word partnership, and and but but it usually ends up pretty poorly for the host organism or the old media company. What you're seeing is a resurgence in some old media companies that are known for the quality of their journalism and what I would call the kind of the relentless pursuit of the truth. So I'll take the Washington Post and the New York Times as an example. Both those companies are actually thriving relative to they were a few years ago because scarcity creates economic value. And what you find is with hardcore, hard-hitting, well-thought-out journalism that is seen as being mostly true, I'll say, uh, because of the overwhelm, the explosion in fake news, all of a sudden, real news has greater scarcity. So there's a newfound appreciation for what I would call, you know, less fake news. I don't want to. I don't want to claim these firms don't have a bias and that they don't get it wrong. That's not true, but they get it less wrong. You know, I was on the phone this morning with someone from um, Financial Times, and they called me back to verify some stuff. They will fact check the thing. When I'm on the show with you, you will you will check facts. I, you have underlined my entire book, which is super <laughs> impressive. The scary thing, Jill, is that we act like Facebook should be um, exonerated from that responsibility, and that it's not possible for them. We're not talking about the realm of the possible. We're talking about the realm of the profitable. And what they've decided is any friction or cost or humans to get in our process is verboten or impossible. It's not impossible. It's just expensive. Right. And she's going to say, oh, you won't be as profitable. Like you make a gazillion dollars already. You make a gazillion minus something and you're still a profitable company. Facebook announced they were hiring 250 people, which I affectionately called pissing in the ocean to mm-hmm. ensure safety and security. Then they, under extreme heat over the last week, they've increased it to 1,000. Facebook could hire 100,000 people. They could spend $750 million to a $1 billion in artificial intelligence to help those 100,000 people identify, sort, and tag questionable content, and it would reduce their free cash flow by maybe 10 to 20%. This is a company that could literally create the equivalent of the Night's Watch, you know, to use a Game of Thrones analogy, and then lease it out at cost to other media companies that want to ensure they haven't been subterfuged or weaponized by malicious parties. Instead, they're playing slow ball and not acknowledging the problem, which is the number one mistake in crisis management. I'm not surprised that that Mark Zuckerberg would take that stance. I am surprised that Charles Sandberg, who presumably is the adult in the room, is not or someone else is not standing up and saying like, you know what? This is ridiculous. We've got to do better. Well, they've all got to toe the, the company line. Hypocrisy is a strong word, but I think these companies, and you brought up Charles Sandberg, who I think is this inspiring, impressive person, and she is. And Facebook gives her a great deal of time and flies her all over the world to talk about the important conversation around kind of gender politics and how the role of women in the workplace and how women can kind of lean in. But to a certain extent, all these companies promote a progressive image to wallpaper over what I would call business activity that's more indicative of Darth Vader and Ayn Rand. Mm. 
So they create this illusionist trick. First openly gay CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I think Tim Cook is impossible not to like. The Mm -hmm. immigrant story of Larry and Sergey. Hey, everybody, lean in. The irony really hit me when I was at Cannes and uh, where the kind of the top media executives in the world all congregate or ad execs anyways. And what everyone wanted to see, the number one ticket, was to go see Sheryl Sandberg talk about leaning in. And she's inspiring. And it just struck me we were in a room, and I didn't go, but I saw probably 600 very senior female executives from the media industry lining up to hear Cheryl talk. But I remember thinking, as they're inspired and fawning over her, probably one in 10 or one in five are going to be laid off in the next 12 months because Facebook is taking so much business from traditional media. And I just found the whole thing so steeped in irony. These companies wrap themselves in a neon blue, pink, a rainbow blanket to try and create an illusionist trick to such that we don't focus on what I would call pretty rapacious business behavior. In addition to these humongous, and we didn't even really talk about Google, but let's just say that 90% of every ad dollar goes through Google, basically. It's 90% like, of searches. Uh, so, well, searches go through Google, and so yeah. that's a little scary. Google is the answer to everything. It's very good. Google's our god. And the search market, just to interrupt you, Jill, is uh, now a bigger market than the entire advertising market of any nation with the exception of the U.S. So this is a big, <laughs> big industry. Crazy. Who could be the fifth? So in the book, um, I think I say Airbnb. Yeah. Uh, you and I with 30 or $50 million could start a ride-hailing company similar to Uber. You need drivers, you need supply, you need demand, you need people who need rides in one city. To do Airbnb again or a competitor, you probably need several hundred million because you need the supply, you need apartments and places to rent in a city, but then you need global awareness and demand because the people coming into Austin, Texas are coming in from all over the world. So I think the moat around Airbnb is bigger than it is around Uber. And I think Airbnb has a shot at it. Having said that, the other one would be Netflix. All of these companies are operating systems for information, mm-hmm. for media, for retail. And Netflix is becoming an operating system for joy, I think. I think television is in a golden age. The A talent and more capital is going into television than films now. If you really want to understand somebody, just look at what their Netflix home screen is. I think it's sort of an x-ray into who they are. So they could be the operating system for what has become the second most important screen in our lives behind the mobile phone, the television. Now, having said that, the true fifth horseman, and and then I'll shut up, is Microsoft, which I didn't write about. And the question I get most about the book is, why didn't you include Microsoft? And the honest answer is, I just don't understand Microsoft as well as I understand the other four, and Mm -hmm. more B2B. Mm -hmm. But Microsoft has probably or arguably other than Amazon, been the best performing company for the last 24 months in the world. And the acquisition of LinkedIn seemed to be, like at first people were like, why would they do that? And then all of a sudden people started to run the numbers through and understand like what LinkedIn has. I think that's really was an interesting acquisition. Makes perfect sense. The metaphor I use is a biological one in the book, and that is Google is God, uh, Facebook is love, Amazon is our consumptive gut, and Apple is sex. And if you were to say what Microsoft is, Microsoft is work. So acquiring LinkedIn made perfect sense for them. Before you go, tell me what you think is the, if you're a young person, sure. you're graduating, you go to one year of business school because the second year is baloney, yeah, as you say. You read that. Um, thank God I didn't get an MBA. See, mom? It was all right. She really wanted me to go to law school, oh, but yeah? that seemed like interminable to me. You said that all the talent is going into these big mm-hmm. companies. What should somebody who's listening to this, who's either kid is listening to this or you don't, like, should they be dying to get into these firms or should they be going elsewhere in the economy and trying to explore different things? 
So there's a, a few a few rules, and I talk to a lot of kids around career coaching and high school kids, and one sounds very passe, but going to college and going to the best brand possible, unfortunately, we live in a caste system. It's just that the arbiter of our upward mobility is largely not only our college degree, but where we went to college. So for all the talk about Steve Jobs and Jay-Z and Mark Zuckerberg dropping out of college, you should assume your son or daughter is not that person. Mm-hmm. So college is a really good plan B. I would say in terms of businesses, find a company with recurring revenue. They're better businesses. Find a company that is one or two degrees away from technology. If you have an opportunity to go to work for one of these companies, hands down, take it. This is like having a second MBA or second degree Mm. stamped on your forehead. It's like going to work for Procter & Gamble and Unilever in the CPG world. It just says you're good because what these firms do, the, the value they add is the same value a university adds. It's not the education. It's not what you learn there, which are important. It's the credentialing. If you can get a job in engineering at Google or in uh, user design at Facebook, it means you're just pretty damn good at what you do. Or you were so savvy you could fool somebody into thinking you were pretty damn good. But either of those skills, everybody wants. There's nobody, no firm right now will sit you down and say, oh, I see you spent five years at Amazon. We're just not interested in anyone who's worked at Amazon. Mm. Said no HR executive ever. So if your son or daughter has the opportunity to go to work for one of these firms, absolutely. Now, having said that, they don't hire as many people as we'd like to think. General Motors, a quarter million, half million employees with a $60, $70 billion market cap. Uh, Facebook, $450 billion market cap, 17,000 employees. Mm. So we're under the impression there's a lot more people working in these firms than there actually are, which is you know, topic for a longer conversation. We'll have you back. Will you come back? Thanks, Joe. We'd love to. All right. Before you leave, you said, what's the best financial decision? You said diversification, right? Yeah. That's what you learned. What was the worst financial decision you made? Divorce. It is a painful one. I'm with you, man. That is expensive and painful. Yeah. Psychically and yeah. financially. Yeah. And that and then so, and uh, I don't know if that was the answer you were looking for. No, I love it. Um, we love those. We like that the best. Yeah. The honest ones are the good ones. Yeah, that, trust that, me. That was rough. Scott Galloway author of The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. We're going to link to the book. Go buy the book, but also watch some of these YouTube videos. They are fantastic. I was laughing out loud watching oh, some of these videos. It made so. really made like very humorous, a great take. No baloney. So thank you. Good stuff. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much to Scott Galloway. Go get this book. You want to find out how Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google are taking over our lives and what you need to do about it. Don't forget, we've got our bonus episode that comes out on Tuesdays and the longer form every single Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag better off. You can also reach me via email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. That's askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week.